In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today, I'm in Houston, and tomorrow you're all the way in Washington, and we're here to talk about Georgia politics, the modern of uh, the miracle of modern technology. you got to go far away to tell the story of Georgia politics. You do, especially this year with all the, the, the national attention on our two Senate races, and we got some, some real big news this past week with uh, one of the candidates that both of us know very well, John Ossoff, the, the, the sixth district uh, runner-up back in the 2017 epic, epic congressional election. He is going, setting his sights on bigger things. He is running for U.S. Senate against David Perdue, joining three other Democrats in that contest. Exactly. It wasn't exactly a surprise. We've seen him kind of become more active over the last six months. He held a town hall event up in North Georgia, Greg, that you covered earlier this year, and just kind of has made sure to up his presence just online, too. We, we've seen him tweet a lot about David Perdue over the last couple of months, really ramping up the, the pressure on him. And, and we'd heard for a long time that he was eyeing the Senate race. So not a surprise at all, although it was a bit surprising, I guess, that he chose to run against Perdue rather than going for Johnny. Isaacson's open seat. Yeah, let's talk about that because we get a lot of questions about why he's challenging Purdue in a race that's already super crowded um, rather than running against uh, running for Johnny Isaacson's seat in a race that has still not a single Democratic candidate. We don't know who the Republican candidate is. Here's a couple reasons, and I've talked to him and I've talked to other strategists. The first is the Isaacson race will be a lot more expensive and a lot more uh, resource-driven than the Purdue race. If you win the Purdue race, if, if you, you if you manage to oust Senator Purdue, you're in for six years. Whoever runs for that Isaacson race has to not only run in November, but likely in a January runoff between the two top contenders, and then again in 2022 for a full six-year term. So they're looking at three statewide races in the span of you know just a few months. So that's one reason why Ossoff is, is leaning is running towards uh, running in the Purdue race. Yeah, and and one thing to note, you mentioned the January 2021 runoff, is that, you know, this Isaacson seat can determine who controls the Senate. Not only that, there aren't going to be really any other races that are, you know, not many other states do 
the runoff system. So that, in theory, could be the only ongoing Senate race in January 2021. And and to top it off, you have whichever party that's going to lose the White House in 2020 that's going to be out for revenge. So you really have to kind of stand on your own in that race. Not only are you going to have to be a fundraising juggernaut and, and truly inspire voters to come out to the polls again when they've probably been bombarded for upwards of, of a year, but this will also become totally nationalized. Um, you know, all these resources, all of this attention, and you really are not going to be able to control your message at that point. So at least with Purdue, you know exactly who you're aiming for, and you're not going to have to worry about going into overtime. It's all about matchups. And right now, if you're a Democrat looking at the other race, the, the, the race to, to fill Isaacson, Senator Isaacson's remaining two years, you don't know who your matchup is going to be. You know some a likely list of you know potential contenders that Governor Kemp could appoint to that seat. But remember, uh, you know he he's going to be out of that seat in the end of the year. Senator Isaacson is, and Kemp will probably pick someone within the next few months. Um, he's got some time to pick, and he told me earlier this week that he has no timeline quite yet. But he's got a range, a small galaxy worth of Republicans to pick from. So if it's about matchups. And you're John Ossoff, and you've looked at the matchup. Um, he's 32. Senator Purdue is in his – tomorrow, remind me. I believe he's in his mid to late 60s. So you've got a, you've got a message of generational change you, you, can, you can push forward. Um, you can he – he's already dropped so many hints that he is going to run a more populist-hinged campaign than he did for the more conservative-leaning 6th district. Um, whether that will work will remain to be seen. Um, but – the big gauntlet he has to hurdle here, too, is the three other Democrats already in the race and, and a race that also could still grow because one of the things we've learned once Senator Isaacson said he wasn't running was that that not only has spurred a lot of discussion among Democrats running for his seat, but also got some Democrats rethinking whether or not they should run for the Purdue seat. So that that field could still grow. Yeah, exactly. And one thing that's also worth noting about the Isaacson race, which we've talked about in the past, is that there's no party primary like there's going to be with Purdue. And having a party primary definitely brings out the base. So if you're going to run to the left and really kind of lean into that message, like Stacey Abrams did in 2018, it might be more advantageous for you to run in the Purdue race. Whereas having this jungle primary, as you call it, for Isaacson, that that might incentivize if you're, if you're more of a moderate to kind of appeal to everyone. New Year's resolutions are hard, but starting 2020 with the best entertainment during the Xfinity New Year New Gig Sale is easy. Now that's simple, easy, awesome. Click, call, or visit us today. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Well, let's talk about Ossoff. I mean, he was probably best known in 2017 for his prodigious fundraising skills. He raised about $30 million in that special election at the time, it set a record for the uh, smashed record after record for raising cash for uh, for a U.S. House election. Um, he generated a huge profile and a really, really lengthy fundraising list that he'll really put to test um, over the next uh, year or so running for the U.S. Senate. Um, one of his biggest weaknesses, well, there's a few that, that came out during that, that race. One was he didn't live in the district and he was constantly pummeled by Karen Hendel and other Republicans for not living in the district. That doesn't matter for U.S. Senate races. He can live wherever he wants in Georgia. And he has he has since moved down to, um, to, to Atlanta, the city of Atlanta, so well outside the 6th District. But also it was his experience. Republicans loved running um, ads, kind of joking, mocking him as this young kid who's 
inflated his resume and who wields lightsabers because there is a there is a video of him uh, in a Star Trek themed video when he was in college. So they're going to try to highlight a contrast between Senator Perdue and 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 John Ossoff, someone who has never held elected experience office before. Exactly. And and you saw him in ad after ad being tied to Nancy Pelosi, um, something Karen Handel also did in 2018 when she was running against Lucy McBath. And really, I, I believe the term was puppet of Nancy Pelosi. You're certainly going to see that again, although probably not as much as in the last couple of years, because it, it seemed like in a lot of other special elections that that message wasn't resonating as much. But what you are going to see, and which we've seen from David Perdue, no matter which Democrat he's talking about, is framing them as a social, socialist, no matter who they are, no matter where they fall um, politically within the Democratic Party. Um, something new that you're seeing from Ossoff that he's really kind of sharpened over the last few months, you know, he's going to be running as, as a candidate who's against political corruption. And the the kind of money quote that, that you used, Greg, in your story, he, he framed David Perdue as a, quote, caricature of Washington corruption. Yeah. And, and when he's on message, he just repeats that over and over. I, saw, I caught one of his clips in uh, MSNBC and he, he said the same thing repeatedly that 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 he is fighting against corruption, and that and that David Perdue is perpetuating it by being so closely allied with with President Trump and, and Republicans. He's also made his message a lot about guns. I mean, more so than he certainly did in seven, 2017, um, saying that the NRA owns Congress and that it's time for new gun restrictions. Um, the interesting dynamic in this race too is that now you have four white contenders in the same race, four liberal white contenders. No one's really running as a centrist. No one's running as a more middle of the road candidate. Um, but but Asaf came out strong with an endorsement from a very, very prominent African-American leader here in Georgia. Yeah, John Lewis, who he used to work for as an intern back in his early days on Capitol Hill. Um, and obviously, John Lewis, you know, hero of the civil rights movement, known among Democrats on Capitol Hill as the conscious of Congress. And that's been the most high profile endorsement that we've seen so far in this race. So that certainly isn't anything, or sorry, that certainly isn't nothing. Uh, but we're going to be watching to see if any high profile African American Democrats are going to be getting in. And, and the two of us wrote a story a couple months ago about why maybe some African American candidates have shied away. Purdue's we've talked about plenty of times has really high name ID, a really enviable political network that includes his husband or his uh, his first cousin, Sonny Perdue, and President Donald Trump. Um, and, and that'll be hard to run against at the same time. If, if you don't know who, who Brian Kemp is going to put up in Isaacson's seat, maybe it does make more sense to go for that Purdue seat. Yeah, there's a lot of unknowns out there, starting with who Governor Kemp will pick for that seat and which Democrats will run for the for the other um, seat and also, if, as you mentioned, if any of them will get into this race and make it a five-person race. Um, right now, we we know that all four of these candidates are trying to carve out similar lanes. They're trying to trying to go after um, liberal Democrats who will vote in this primary. They'll try to energize the base, um, and none of them have a claim on this. You'd have to you'd have to assume now that that Ossoff is the front runner um, based based on his, his fundraising skills and the amount of incredible amount of national attention his announcement got. I mean that. That kind of ricocheted all over, all over the political um, uh, political circles all over the nation when he when he announced the race. Um, but can he translate that into sort of a, you know, a formidable advantage? We're not sure exactly how much money he's raised yet in, in his opening, but we've heard from other campaigns that it's a significant amount of money. It might not be you know 
eight million plus, but it, it, it sounds like it's pretty good um, from what all the donors are saying out there. But is it enough to cement his place as the as the candidate to beat? Because you remember, there's there's three other candidates, and we'll go through them. Former mayor of Columbus, Teresa Tomlinson, Sarah Riggs Amico, the runner-up for lieutenant governor last year, and Ted Terry, the mayor of Clarkston. And each of them have been in the campaign for weeks, if not months, calling those donors, locking down endorsements. And Tomlinson in particular has a few endorsements of her own. She has former Governor Roy Barnes and Andrew Young, the former UN ambassador to mayor of Atlanta. Yeah, absolutely. Um, something, you know, some numbers from from Ossoff's that I do want to mention before we proceed too much further. You mentioned he raised $30 million in 2017. That was among half a million donors, which is wild. Yeah. Um, and a lot of An those average were- average of 21 bucks a donor. Exactly. Too. A lot of those were small donors. But here's the thing. That race was, first of all, the, the first major special election after Trump was elected. So the eyes of the whole nation were on Georgia. Right now, he's not going to have that advantage. Um, you know, this is, while we have a very noisy presidential race, you know, there's another Senate race going on. There's multiple competitive House races in Georgia. So there's a lot of noise. It'll be harder to cut through that. At the same time- and it was the only race in the nation at the time too. So not only was it the only race in Georgia, but the whole the whole nation was watching this race and he was able to capitalize on that sort of vacuum of attention elsewhere uh, to just rake it in here. At the same time, you could also argue that that Ossoff became really overexposed nationally in that race. And, and folks have talked about that, too, how it became so nationalized that there was almost nothing Ossoff could do by the end. Like it was all kind of out of his hands and above his head. It became really hard to um, sell his own message and, and his own narrative. So there's an argument to be made that because every everyone's attention is so scattered right now, maybe he'll be able to define himself more in the way that he wants. Yeah, if you turn on the TV during that 2017 race, you certainly will remember you couldn't avoid pro or con Ossoff images. Um, and yeah, he'll, he'll, you know, he, but that's a huge benefit he has coming into this race. Republicans put out an oppo poll um, that a Republican pollster had done about his um, and about his support in Georgia. And one of the things it showed was he has 51% name recognition across the state. So about 16% was pot, was favorable, 12% unfavorable. And this was a Republican poll, remember. So it wasn't necessarily uh, looking for, for a positive outcome for him, but it showed that his name rec is already tremendously high thanks to that glut of ads pro and con that ran on every every commercial spot you can think of by uh, by by june of 2017 yeah and, and remember back then he entered the race as this this democrat 29 or 30 years old saying you know we need to make trump furious we need to show them you know that that not everyone agrees with with the 2016 election, but by the end he was kind of tacking toward the middle on a lot of issues, um, talking about things like government waste in a way to kind of appeal to moderates. That a lot of that seems to have gone out the window this race. He's talking a lot about populism, corruption, almost kind of Bernie Sanders-esque talking about undoing Citizens United, new restrictions on corporate um, campaign donations. And that's something also that might appeal to some some Trump voters at the same time, because he kind of came up on a really populist message as well. And one thing to remember, too, while, while Karen Handel had Donald Trump come in, had Mike Pence come in, had House Speaker Paul Ryan come in, had pretty much every significant Republican leader in some form or fashion um, help her campaign. Ossoff kept national Republicans, uh, national Democrats, I should say, at arm's length, worried about, uh, you know, turning off moderate voters who he needed to win in this, in, in that contest. 
he and every other Democrat has learned a lesson, taken a page from Stacey Abrams' playbook, that by running aggressively to your party's base, by energizing voters and by aiming for those unlikely voters who skip these types of elections often, even presidential elections, you if you get enough of them, uh, you can come within a razor margin of, of winning the vote. And, and, and Democrats see, certainly see 2020 as the year that they can surpass that razor-thin margin and flip the tables on Republicans. Yeah, exactly. Earlier this week, we saw Stacey Abrams and her campaign manager, uh, Lauren Grow-Wargo, um, come out with their kind of manifesto to to state and national donors explaining why they need to get invested in Georgia early. And what we saw from a lot of the Senate candidates immediately after was kind of associating themselves with that strategy that, that Abrams, um, you know, really ran on last year. Yeah, and Abrams also uh, came out and said through, through Lauren Groh-Wargo that she has not ruled out playing a role as an endorsing or helping to shape this 2020, these two races. So that could be really interesting. Before we go, Tamar, um, you you had a really good chance and a really great story to catch up with U.S. Senator Johnny Isaacson um, in, his, in his return to the Capitol after making his announcement that he would step down at the end of the year. And he dropped a pretty big hint with you. He's got some some big things planned for his remaining time in Washington. Yeah, I had yet I didn't have a chance to catch up with Isaacson until earlier this week. As everyone knows, I was hiking a mountain in Yosemite, completely unaware that his retirement news was going to come down, as as all of us were. Um, so I got a chance to catch up with him on his first day in the Senate on Monday. And what was interesting, you know, he laid out in his retirement announcement all of these parochial priorities he wanted to take care of before he left, getting money for the Savannah port you know, confirming some pending Georgia judges. But one thing that was really interesting was was Isaacson, who really is known as a favorite of Democrats for being this affable bipartisan dealmaker. He definitely had the wheels turning on something else. When when I was there on Monday night watching him in the Senate chamber, he was huddled up next to his friend Mitch McConnell for almost 10 minutes, talking about something that he later said was this big, secret, mysterious, final big deal that he's hoping to take care of before he leaves on December 31st. He wouldn't say what that was, um, but he did mention it's on a particularly sensitive issue that's currently before the Senate. So that kind of narrows it down a little bit. I mean, we have government funding coming up in the next few weeks. You know, they need to avoid another government shutdown. Um, obviously, Democrats are talking about gun control is something they really want to take care of after El Paso and Dayton shootings. Um, you know, there's trade, there's immigration, there's all sorts of things. So it'll be really interesting to see what he's able to do. But at the same time, you know, being a lame duck, it's kind of hard because a lot of political currency goes away. And what's a hallmark of his time in, in, in his three terms as U.S. Senator? It's been bipartisanship. So um, look for him to be working across party lines to find one last signature achievement before he leaves Washington. Yeah, and it was also just interesting. I, I talked to him a lot about how he got to his decision to retire because it really did come out of nowhere. You know, there'd been rumors for years, you know, given his health and his Parkinson's diagnosis, which he's suffered from since 2013. Uh, but for so long, you know, his his team really shot down those rumors and said, no, 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 he ran for re-election in 2016 with the idea that he'd serve a full six-year term. Um, and, and what was so interesting is how quickly this decision came about. 
in mid-July, he had moved into a new apartment in D.C., and his second night there, he tripped and broke four ribs. He later found out after an MRI that he also um, tore his rotator cuff, and that not only that, but a, a cancerous a cancerous batch of cells on his kidneys had doubled in size. And so between all three of those, he said he decided completely on his own that he was ready to leave. Then it really just became a question of timing, and he pulled together of when. exactly of when to step down. He pulled together his wife and his three closest longtime aides, and they kind of took a dive into the Georgia Constitution, and they figured out that he would have to wait until September 2020 in order to avoid a special election. Um, and that was something he he figured he couldn't do. Um, so they, they decided on on December 31st as kind of a, a natural, kind of easy place to go, giving him some time to take care of some final priorities out the door. But uh, setting up what will probably be the biggest blockbuster Senate race in Georgia history. Well, you got it. Well, Tamar, read her story. It's fantastic. It's a great read. It gives you an inside glimpse at the last few weeks um, in, uh, inside the Isaacson camp. Read that story and continue to follow us because there will be a lot more news coming up. Tamar, thanks for joining Thank us. Thank you. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.